want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Luke 15. Luke 15, keep that there. I know we've had a lot of visitors with us this summer, and we're grateful that you've been here with us. It's been a, a really good, surprisingly fruitful response with lots of engagement that we've had through this idea this summer of misconceptions, the misconceptions of God. Remember, we started at the beginning of the summer with that quote by A.W. Tozer that said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I want to review some of the topics that we've covered this summer and what we've learned about God's character. Next slide. So here's some of them. We started with God as a good luck charm, which I led at the beginning of the summer, how we do that, maybe even more than we think we do, even for those of us who have followed Jesus for a long time. And then Doug taught on the misconception of God as an angry tyrant, saying while he's sovereign and he's king and he's in control, he's ruling not to control you and to make you miserable and to hurt you. He's doing it out of his love. And then Kent Gerhardt taught on God as a spiritual Santa Claus and the misconception of that, of saying that he is not there simply to make us happy in life. Happiness is not the be-all, end-all, and it's not this, if I do well, I'll get rewarded, if I don't do well, I'll be punished, that we live into. The truth is we're all messy, we're all sinful, and even in his grace of being bad kids who deserve lumps of coal in our stocking, he in his grace and mercy says, no, 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 I love you, I love you enough to forgive you anyway. So we talked about grace. And then Doug talked about the idea that, that God is a Republican or a Democrat, that misconception, and saying that the king and his kingdom is what's more important. Not that politics and election, the election season doesn't have a role, but the most important thing for followers of Jesus is that it's on, on a higher plane of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God above all else. And then this morning we close out our summer series on God as an absent and distant father. In the first week of the series, we talked about narratives, that narratives shape us in our human brain, that we can't not live in narratives in our head. And if life doesn't make sense, we'll even make up a narrative, even if it's wrong, in order for us to make sense of life. So it's important that we make sure we understand, A, what our narratives are, and B, to ask, are they true or not? Because if we live in untrue narratives, it damages our life and the lives of the people around us. So spiritual growth or spiritual formation, how we grow as a Christian, is simply replacing our false narratives. Oh God, you're just angry. You're just a good luck charm. Oh, you're just this or that. To the Jesus narratives, what did Jesus have to say about his father? What do we know about God our Father? And so when we grow as a Christian because we live into our narratives is putting aside the false narratives and putting on the Jesus narratives that exist. That's why this series has been so important. And we started this series when I asked us all to close our eyes and to think about God thinking about you. You may remember that back in June. And I asked, with your eyes closed, I asked... What comes to your mind? What is the expression on God's face as you think about him thinking about you? And some of you courageously admitted disappointment, anger, disgust, aloofness, unemotional, apathetic. 
And these are some of the misconceptions that we've worked through to say, no, 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 that's not at all what God thinks about you. It's so important for us to understand God's character. I want to throw a little uh, theologically nerdy slide up followed by something that's normal everyday language, okay? So let's put this slide up here. Christology leads to missiology, leads to ecclesiology. Don't get tripped up by theologies. It just means this. A study and understanding of who Christ is helps us to have an understanding of what Jesus' mission is And then from there gives us an understanding of a study, an understanding of what the church is. Here's here's the better slide. When we understand Jesus and his Father God accurately, truthfully, then we then understand Jesus' mission with his Father and with the Spirit, which then informs the church. Why do I show this to you? Because if you get this wrong, you get this pretty wrong, And you get this really wrong. And what happens is a lot of you have experienced a ton of hurt and a ton of damage right here because the church you were at didn't understand God's mission fully because ultimately didn't understand Jesus and who he is and what he cared about and what his his life was focused on. This is why we've spent a summer going through it. This very reason. Because we want to be a church that follows Jesus' mission, that follows after the heart of who Jesus is. That's it. That's why we're doing this series. This idea that we're looking at this morning of God as an absent and distant father is one of the more difficult misconceptions to teach on. Because so much of the idea of our Heavenly Father for us as human beings whether we like it or not, is rooted in our experience with our earthly fathers. Some of us have had wonderful fathers. Some of us should probably, after the gathering, call our dads on the phone and just say, I'm so thankful for the example that you set. They were trustworthy and patient and graceful, not perfect, but they were present and full of unconditional love and compassion. But on the flip side, some of us had terrible fathers. They were present but they were oppressive, maybe even abusive, scary, hurtful with their words, with their hands, with their time, with their addictions. Others of you may have had fathers who provided. They worked hard, provided for the family financially so you could have food and home and a good life, but emotionally they just weren't present. They, they handled your needs, but not the emotional needs. He loved you by serving, but you, you never really got the I love yous or the hugs or the I'm proud of yous. So your understanding of your dad's love is maybe appreciation, but it's still disappointment and some distance. It's emotionally dry or a little bit cold. Others of you may have had semi-present fathers in the home, but not really there. They're constantly distracted by their work or other responsibilities, always elsewhere, never seemingly to be enjoying your presence. They might have been in the room, but their mind's elsewhere. They're checking their phone. Others of us come from divorced homes. You saw your dad, but it wasn't a part of your everyday life. And your relationship that you had with your dad was strained and awkward because the mother you loved was hurt and estranged from the father you loved, and you were caught in the middle. Some of us didn't have fathers. Some of us had fathers who died or walked out on your life when you were too young to remember. And so you had no concept whatsoever of God as God as your father. 
It's not a good memory. It's not a bad memory. There's just no memory. So how can I relate to God when I have no context to what an earthly father is? So as we begin this teaching this morning, I want us to do a few things. The first one is this. Just to acknowledge right away that your view of our Heavenly Father is in some ways colored by our view of our earthly father, at least initially. Whatever your experience is, it colors your understanding. You know, several of my Catholic friends struggle with seeing God as their father. And what they tell me is this. They believe God exists. He probably loves us. He is busy running the universe, and therefore he's not really interested or involved in the daily affairs of my life because they're too small. He loves us, but only at a distance. He's the God as provider, making sure we're safe and we have food and a place to, to live, but he's not really interested in getting to know us emotionally. This is what I want to address this morning because this is prevalent. Prevalent. God is not an absent, absent, aloof, distant father. And secondly, I want to challenge you in this. While we acknowledge that our experience with our earthly fathers colors our understanding, whatever your interaction has been, do not let the truth of your earthly reality skew the truth of who your heavenly father is. This is huge. This happens a lot when I sit down and talk with people that say, I hate church and I hate God. Why? Because God's my dad, and if you knew my dad, you wouldn't want a God like that. Well, guess what? Even the best earthly fathers fall short and don't live up to the exceedingly generous father that you have in heaven. James Bryan Smith uh, wrote a book called The Good and Beautiful God, and he tells the story of a time that he prayed a prayer and he started off in a room full of people where he was teaching, Dear Heavenly Father, and, and he went on. And when the event was done, a woman came up to him and, and told him that while she appreciated his teaching, that as soon as James had called God Father, that she shut down. Emotionally, she was done. She had a terrible father. He couldn't think of God as her father. And James really felt for this woman. But he also kindly told her that not calling God our Father was not the solution. See, the problem is that if we begin with our understanding of Father and we project it onto God, it will always be incomplete. Always. See, when Jesus describes God as his Father, we have to let him define what fatherhood means, not us. He defines fatherhood. Long before earthly fathers were created, God existed as a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Their relationship existed before any human male was created. Fatherhood, fatherhood was first defined by God, not by us. And this can be tremendously healing for some of us in the room who had awful fathers. You don't have to define God your Father by the earthly reality of your dad. In fact, if you do, it'll always leave you with a misunderstood reality of God's character. And if this is your story, where you've had a really bad understanding of who God is because of your dad, I just want you to say, we're going to pray for you at the end. And I want you to think about that because this is huge for us. 
in understanding who God actually is in your life. Now, Jesus had a few things to say about correcting misconceptions about how God our Father actually is. Think about the way Jesus taught us to pray. How did he start out? Our Father. Jesus says that we should pray this way. We should pray by saying our Father. Jesus called his Father Abba in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's desperate. He's crying out. He knows what's going to be happening to him. He's going to be crucified. And he cries out, Abba. Now, for some of us, maybe we've heard this term, Abba. We think it means dad or daddy. I actually think it's, it's, it's more primitive than that. Dad or daddy is something that can be said by someone who's several years old. I mean, my, my mom used to call her dad, daddy, even though he was 60 years old. It's more primitive than that. Abba actually is like dada. Dada. So primitive, so simple that even children, sometimes their first word, dada. This is how Jesus prays to his father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in desperation, he says, dada, help me. That's the invitation that you have to pray to your heavenly father, dada. It's that primitive. It's that simple. It's that young. Paul later talks about how we're adopted into God's family. Five times he uses that metaphor of adoption. You were orphaned. You had no future. You had no family. You had no hope. And God simply said, you, I want you. You're in my family. No more orphanages. I want you. You in my family. And because we've been adopted, Paul says, we can call our father Abba, Dada. That's quite an invitation. Think about what Jesus told us about his father in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to, listen to what it says in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, it says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Those who seek, find. And to those who knock, the door will be opened. Which of you... Now listen to this. Listen to this, because Jesus actually slams dads in this. Listen for it. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish... We'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's kind of, we don't often talk about that, but Jesus says, Dads, you're all corrupt. What? He's making a point here saying, even you evil dads, you know you wouldn't give your son a snake if he asked for bread. You wouldn't give him a rock. You wouldn't, you'd give him what he wanted, what he needed. And if you even who are evil will do good things for your children, and this is my favorite phrase in that passage, how much more will your heavenly father do that for you? How much more? 
This is the misconception that Paul's trying to get us to understand the truth. Uh, sorry, Jesus is trying to get us to understand the truth of who his father is. And there are a lot of good dads out there. They're saying, even you good dads, you're still evil. You still need rescuing. You're still a sinner. But I know you're good and you do great things. How much more does your father in heaven love you? How much more? How much more? This God is an exceedingly generous God. Now think about the stories that Jesus told about the character of God the Father. And this is where we get to Luke 15. He told a story several of us are probably familiar with. And it's often referred to as the prodigal son at the end of Luke 15. And if you've heard this story before, I would take a guess that you actually don't know the whole story. Because it's much deeper there than maybe what we've been taught in VBS. Why did Jesus tell this story? That's important for us to understand. Why did he tell it? Because the religious leaders had misconceptions, very strong misconceptions, about who God was. And the misconception that they were believing, these religious leaders, is that God doesn't want his people hanging out with sinners. God wouldn't do that. So you shouldn't either. That's why Jesus told these three stories. And as he tells these three stories, each have an increasing intensity with the intention to, to tighten the screws. He tells a story about a hundred. One is lost, then it's found. Ten coins. One is lost, then it's found. Then he tells a story about two sons. One hundred, ten, two. He's increasing the temperature in the room and telling the story. Let me give you a little bit of context and background because you've got to understand this to get the full grasp of what Jesus is saying. The first one, we have to understand what the word prodigal means. When we hear the word prodigal, sometimes we think, oh, he's a prodigal, he's a rebel. It does not mean rebel. It means squanderer or extreme waster. That's an important detail in this story. It does not mean rebellious. Number two, the father-son relationship and the respect in the Middle East in the first century, incredibly intense. It's very military-like. You would never disrespect your father in any way, shape, or form. And if you did, it would be understood that the father could punch you or slap you, and it would be warranted. Don't you ever treat your father like that again. You do that again, I might disown you. Respect was huge in the hierarchy. And if you, if you did that, you could be not just slapped but beaten. You definitely would be shamed, and you would quickly learn to never, ever disrespect your father. Other things we need to understand is that affluent and well-respected men in the first century, there are several things that make, uh, that, that connect some dots for us to this story. First of all, if you were affluent, you had servants or slaves. And if you had that, slaves were always barefoot. It was more like indentured servants. It wasn't like we think about slavery today, although it certainly isn't preferred um, the way they did this in the first century. But they were cared for. Um, their families lived. They were, their needs were provided, but they were there to serve the needs, um, you know, housemaids and, and working out in the field. Um, but that was there. But they, they, they all only went barefoot. Only, only family members wore shoes. They also, in addition to wearing shoes, children would wear robes. They would wear a signet ring, big fatty ring on here that had your family crest on it. 
And when you did official, an official document and you would send something out for official business, you would heat up wax, you would stick it in the signet ring that would seal the letter, and then you'd send it with a servant who would then take it off for family business. So it was your signature. You squeeze it down in the wax because you had the ring on your hand. You would host banquets sometimes, but not often. For years, if you were an affluent family, you would be beefing up the family cow because one day your daughter's going to grow up and get married. And you're going to invite the whole village to come out and have a party. It might be the only two things. might be having a grandchild or a wedding. It might be the only times that you would, you would slaughter your, your cow to be able to have a barbecue for the whole village. If you hosted a banquet, these special banquets, you must stay with your guests if you're the host the entire time. If you were for any reason to leave the, the banquet hall to attend to some needs, your guests would be offended. Highly offensive. You must stay and be there with your host. They're your, ho or they're your guests. So you must treat them well as the host. The other thing is that affluent families and affluent men would wear long flowing robes all the way down to their shoes. And they would walk slowly. Why would they walk slowly? Because the richer I am, the more servants I can afford, the slower I walk because they take care of my business. There's no need for me to walk quickly. I walk slowly. In fact, the slower I walk through town, the more you can kind of know I'm not in a rush because I'm rich enough that I can afford to have all these servants. And men, the other thing, why it was down so low, women especially, but also men, would never show their legs. It would, for no reason ever, it was very offensive to show your legs. If you were to run, which you never would, with a robe, you would have to pull your robe up so you don't trip over it. And what do you do when you pull your robe up and you run, if you're an affluent man who you never would run, but if you did, what would happen? You would embarrass yourself because you're exposing yourself to the village, your bare legs. Inheritance with families. The Old Testament law said that when a male died and he had children, the older son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son would receive one-third of the inheritance, and if you were a woman, you wouldn't receive anything. Maybe a dowry for your wedding, but that was it. And lastly, Jewish customs were very strong. You could not have pigs. You could not have pork. You would not eat that. You would not touch that. Would you not be around it? As a good Jewish child, you probably have never seen a pig before. So no Baconator from Wendy's or a hot dog from Hatfield Meats completely out of the picture. Okay? With that, I want you to turn to Luke 15, and I'm going to start reading in verse 11. Please keep in mind everything that we've just talked about in terms of the background. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him and he ran to him. And he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. And he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you gave me, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him, My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I hope you're connecting some dots here. The fact that the father said, you can have your share of the inheritance, younger son, deserved what? Don't you ever do that again. You do that again, I'm kicking you out of the family. What were you thinking? What in this father's generosity, what does he do? He gives him what he knows will be destructive and what's hurtful to him, but he gives it to him anyway. It's an unbelievable, unbelievable father. Those listening in the first century would have been like, that dad is messed up. That dad is too lenient. That dad is a pushover. But he's looking for him. Is he coming back today? Is he coming back today? And he hits rock bottom, right? And so what does he have to do? He has to work among the pigs. Somebody he knows he's not supposed to do. It's off limits. It's unkosher. And it says he was eating the, the, the pods the pigs were eating. It comes from a carob tree doesn't hurt a pig's mouth. It's incredibly painful for a human mouth to eat a carob pod. He's so desperate. He's willing to eat food that wrecks his mouth. This is how desperate he is. And the father's looking out. Is he coming? Is that a a cloud of dust coming up down the road? Is that him? And what does he do? 
He doesn't wait till he comes back. He doesn't saunter slowly through town. He lifts up his robe and he runs. He's willing to expose himself and be embarrassed because the love for his son is too big to care about what the villagers think. He won't even let him finish. He interrupts him quick. And what's the instruction from the father? Put shoes on his feet. You're my son. You're not a servant. Put a robe on him. You belong to me. And put a ring on his finger. You have been reinstated with the family name. I want you to notice what the father did not do, he, how he did not respond in the story. Contrary to what everyone expected him to do, the father did not say, go ahead, make your confession, make your apology. Go ahead, beg for my forgiveness. See what I do. He did not disown his son forever and honor the older son for his duty and his loyalty for all that he had done over the years to be obedient. He did not embrace the younger son and give him what he requested, and that was to be one of the servants of his household. He gave him his inheritance, but he did not give him what he asked for when he came back. Just make me a servant. He did not say to him, you know what, it's really not that big a deal. Just keep this between the two of us and we'll call it even. He invites the whole flippin' village and says, we have to celebrate this. He did not smack him. He did not punch him in the face when the younger son returned and say, don't ever do that again. You have caused me so much shame and dishonor. He did not smack the older son in the face when he had to leave the banquet hall and say, I'm not... Son, you listen to me. I'm supposed to be in the banquet hall. I'm out here. What are you doing? He could have punched him too. This is not how Jesus describes the love of his father and your father. In this story, Jesus is correcting misconceptions about who people think the father is, including religious leaders. Maybe some of these ways that I said the father didn't respond is maybe some of the ways your earthly father would respond or has responded. But remember, God is a father who's willing to give us the audacious request, asking for our inheritance, even though it hurts and embarrasses him, and even though it may hurt us too. He longs for his son to come home again. He sees him. He runs to him. He lifts up his robe. He throws parties for children who return, sparing no expense, beefing up the family calf that was waiting for a wedding or a grandchild. He does it because his son returns. He begs an entitled older child to come in and celebrate their sibling's return rather than beating him like he deserves. He loves his younger son so much that he doesn't it says he didn't want to throw a party for him. He tells the older son, the older brother, 
I had to throw a party because my love is so strong I can't not go nuts when my son comes back. He didn't want to do it. He had to do it. This is the kind of father that loves you. This is God's true character. Now, we don't see how the older son responds to what the father said outside the banquet hall. Jesus is a brilliant storyteller, and it's a cliffhanger. He never finishes the story. Why not? Because the Pharisees understand in that moment they are the older brother. Jesus tells a story to them because they say, well, you shouldn't be hanging out with those people. And Jesus launches into three stories, and these Pharisees know he's talking about us. Jesus didn't answer. He didn't give the response from the older son because he wants to see how the Pharisees would respond to God our Father as he really is. So let me ask you this. What does prodigal mean again? Squanderer. Who squandered more? The father says to the older son outside of the banquet hall, everything I've had has always been yours. Everything under this roof, you're the older son. You're going to get twice as much as your younger brother. What are you doing? It's available. It's here for you. I used to think that this story was incorrectly titled. I used to think it was the prodigal sons. Until I realized, no, it's the prodigal son. I'm just thinking about the wrong son. Every one of us, whether we're the older or the younger son, have squandered something and are invited to run into the arms of our Father. Well, let me end with this. I know I'm going a little bit long here, but I love the Olympics. I'm mourning that Rio is over. How many of you honestly love the Olympics? Yeah, so fun. Who knew I, like, every four years thought fencing was, like, the most amazing thing in the world, right? Like, oh, sweet. You know, just, I'm just glued in. I'm just glued in. So I'm, I'm mourning the fact that Rio's done. And, you know, the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, I, I distinctly remember it. I was 13 years old. I was fascinated. La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. And the high dive, you could see it off in the distance. It was just amazing to me. That was the dream team with the, the basketball team. Well, in 1992, in the Olympics in Barcelona, there was a runner in the 400-meter race for Great Britain named Derek Redmond. And I remember watching this event and being so moved by it, I knew, even at 13, this will be a moment I will remember forever. And this will be shown forever because it's that important. Well, Derek had been forced to withdraw from the 400 at the 1988 games in Seoul four years prior, and he had to pull out because of an Achilles injury 10 minutes before his race started. Can you imagine four years training, 84 to 88, and 10 minutes beforehand he's got to pull out of the race? Over the next year, 88, 89, he underwent five surgeries to get back to Olympic training level. 
Redmond had shattered the British 400 meter record at the age of 19. So a healthy Derek Redmond, especially in the 92 games, was his stage, it was his race to win and everyone knew it. Derek had tremendous support in his running career, especially his father, Jim, who he called his best friend. And I wanna, I wanna show this video and I don't want you to focus on Derek. That's all I'm going to tell you. I just, I, I don't want you to focus on Derek. I've watched this video probably 15 times, and one of these days I'm gonna get through without crying, but I can't. Because that's the kind of God who loves you. That's the kind of God who runs out on the track when you've fallen. No one remembers who came in first that race in the 400 meters in 92 Barcelona. But the world knows who the final two finishers were. Because it moves us, because we all want a dad like that. And guess what? As the prodigal sons, as their dad said, everything I have is already entrusted to you. You have that kind of dad. 
He's available to you. He's here. My favorite scene in that is obviously when he runs on the track. But my second, third, and fourth favorite scene is when he, get out of here. <laughs> Why? Because there's a God who not only will rush to your side and care for you and love you and befriend you, but will fight to the death for you if someone tries to interrupt that relationship. Security. Get out of here. He's mine. Stop. Leave. We're going to finish. God doesn't love you because you're good. He loves you because he is good. And in his goodness, he wanted you to exist so that he could love you. Don't squander the opportunity to be in a relationship with the truth of this kind of dad. Whether you're the younger son or the older son, it doesn't matter. You're called to embrace and be embraced by the love of the Father. And some of us are stuck in lies. Some of us have been here all summer. And we hear this and we're like, that's great in my head, but my experiences of who God is have been so hurt by my family or my church or what people have said. I just can't let it go. I, I just can't. And so I'm going to ask you all here as we end this series to do something. Some of you who are stuck, you believe in these lies or these truths, plus or minus 10% of who God is, which is just as destructive. You're saying, I actually need, I'm stuck, but I need to grasp the truth of everything we've looked at of who God is this summer. There's not an altar call, there's anything, but I, we really believe as elders, like it's important for us to actually move in the direction of what we long from God. And some of you here are still saying, I absolutely need to believe the truth about who God is, and I'm, I'm struggling with that. Or I am, but I want more of the truth of who God is. So I'm going to ask you to do something. This is a challenge. But I, in just a minute, I'm going to pray for some of you who maybe have had hard fathers that have colored your understanding of your real father. Or you had a great dad, but you just say, I'm still understanding that God would love me that much because of my low self-esteem. He may love me, I don't love me, and I don't understand how he would love me considering who I am. He knows you better than you do. You know this in your head, but it's not dropping to your heart. So anything that you've heard this summer of saying, I want to believe that, and I don't know how, and I'm feeling stuck, I'm going to invite you all to just come up front, and I want to pray for you. There's something about acknowledging in front of a group of people that I actually, I, I want to know more about the truth of who God is. And so I'm going to invite you, just, just, would you just come right now? If, I'm just going to pray over you. If you want me to just pray that you would want to know God for the truth of who he actually is. Just come forward. We want to pray for you. It's right here. You want to know who God is and his truth. You know the right answers but they're just not getting through your bloodstream. So I'm going to pray for you during this time. And if you're sitting in your seat, would you pray with me on behalf of those who are up here? God, 
you really are our Father, and you love us. And the world in which we live gives us so many skewed pictures of who you actually are. And the role of any church and our church is that we would see an accurate picture of who we are, of who you are. We here today, God, don't want to simply have academic knowledge of your character. We want it to run through our bloodstream. We want to know it in every fiber of who we are because we know if we get that right, we can understand accurately your mission. And if we understand your mission, then we can understand the role of the church. Lord, there are people here who are broken, who have been hurt, who have believed narratives, false narratives for much of their life because of what they learned from their father. Lord, would you break them from that? Would you allow them not to look at their earthly father and project onto you? But may they let you define fatherhood for what it really should be. And may that inform them and set them free. I pray that all of us here, none of us would ever be accused of being a prodigal. That we wouldn't squander the love that's right available to us right now. That's accessible and available. May we not squander it and waste what the invitation is for us now. Lord, I thank you for my courageous brothers and sisters who are up here that want to know who you actually are in truth. And so, God, would you help us because you are a God of truth. Give it to these people. May it drop into their hearts during this time. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.